You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and technology to see how things are changing, the way we get music uh, business done. I'm Dimitri Vitsa, your host. I'm the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, the publicity firm that focuses on music technology. And Tristra Year Jaeger, our writer strategist, is here as well. Hey there. And we have the uh, excellent honor of having returning back to the podcast, Sherry Hu. Hey, Sherry. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, this is fun. We haven't done this with you yet, but we do these news roundups every couple of episodes where we just go through a list of articles and just have a chance to chat about it for folks that are listening. If they haven't had a chance to read some of the trade press or things going on in the industry over the last week or two, it's a fun way for them to go jogging or wash dishes or <laughs> do whatever, mm-hmm. got, do right. their commute and just hear us jab about it and start to think a little bit about some of the things that are coming up. If you don't know Sherry, you should know Sherry. She's got an excellent uh, newsletter and podcast called Water and Music. Um, you can find the podcast on any podcast streaming platform, but you can also find out about Sherry at sherryhu.com, C-H-E-R-I-E-H-U.com. And she also writes for Billboard, Forbes, Music Business Worldwide, and others. Um, so Sherry, so fun to have you here. Yeah, yeah, really glad to be here. I really like this roundup idea. So yeah, super excited. Awesome. So in fact, why don't we kick off and and Tristra, thanks for pulling together several articles that we're looking at this week. And the first thing you pulled up was actually Sherry's newsletter in particular. Um, Some of the research, Sherry, you've been doing or, or exploration around kind of YouTube and why the top YouTube videos aren't from hip hop artists. Or why so there's a, a new um, fascination, I think, with premiering of videos or a sort of a renewed mm-hmm. interest because for a while I think premieres kind of lost um, lost interest for a lot of folks but now these debuts on YouTube are pretty darn big but you made this amazing um, uh, you know you had this insight that most of them are not from YouTube's bread and butter um, hip-hop which you know hip-hop has a lot of presence on YouTube as well as many on many other places but these debuts tend to not be hip-hop so you um, dug deep into that. And I was wondering how you got started thinking about that topic and like what made you notice that interesting little uh, quirk of the debut ecosystem, so to speak? Yeah, definitely. So I think I was paying close attention to, I definitely started paying closer attention to this aspect of YouTube premieres ever since Ariana Grande hosted the entire like live premiere around Thank You Next. And that was with, I think like a relatively newer feature on YouTube, but there were over 800,000 viewers at the time. And I think like over 500,000 messages sent in the chat forum during the premiere. So it had like a very kind of like live, even though it was like had a really big scale, it felt like a very intimate experience. Um, And so ever since that happened, I I just been trying to find, you know, other artists who've been doing the same thing. And I'd also been keeping in touch with the team at Vivo. And last week, they just kind of like offhand because they had the update. Oh, it was um, after Taylor Swift's premiere of Me, the music video for Me. Um, mm-hmm. And it and I guess they were just sending this press release saying that um, that video broke the record for uh, most number of views within 24 hours for a Vivo video. And then they um, in that release, they also mentioned the top five um, and it was just Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, and Adele. Like Adele's video for Hello from 2015 is still one of the top debuts of all time for Vivo. And when I 
just when I saw that list, the first thing that came to mind is, oh, that's really interesting. There aren't any rappers on here or there aren't any hip hop artists. Just because if you look at um, other charts or other, I guess, articles written about streaming, uh, focus on Spotify and Apple Music and other like audio first platforms, rappers are dominating for sure. Like the likes of Drake and Post Malone um, are like very often at the top. And so I uh, just messaged this person I was in contact with at Vivo saying, just asking, um, hey, just curious, are there any, like, have there been any hip hop artists break into, breaking into the top five or who are, who are like at least in the top 10? And she was like, vast majority, uh, no, like no rappers have really made the top 10. Um, as I wrote in my piece, the biggest premiere from a rapper is Nicki Minaj for Anaconda. So that was from like 2014. Uh, long before I feel like a lot of the rap landscape has changed and there was like a lot more of a focus on quote unquote SoundCloud rappers, um, at least in the music media. But like, but even like Drake, um, Eminem, uh, a lot of like their their peers in the rap world, they don't even show up on the Vivo charts until um, around like the 30 mark or below. And I was like, oh, that's really strange. And Vivo also is like a significant but small part of the YouTube ecosystem. So I like just like looked on Wikipedia or elsewhere to see if there are any resources showing like debuts on YouTube of all time. And then that was like even more mind blowing for me because the top ten, uh, yeah, the, the top ten debuts by number of views in twenty four hours on YouTube are almost all like non Western artists. So like K pop for sure dominates. Um, BTS recently beat uh, Taylor Swift. Or I think Taylor Swift just like landed shy of BTS's, um, I guess, number one spot for YouTube debuts. Blackpink um, has some videos there as well. There's one kind of Bollywood video that does feature Pitbull. And like the fact that he was the only rapper to make that top 10 um, with, I think it is like a kind of significant feature, but it's definitely not like a rap song. It's very much like a Bollywood inspired indie pop song. Um, yeah, so he he definitely had had an in like through that collaboration, um, and so just all of these pieces coming together through my like personal research um, over the last week or so, I just thought I, I wanted to write something about it, especially because I like realized there weren't that many um, or there wasn't that much research at the time um, on like the genre splits among these debuts. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. So you came up with these hypotheses about why this was occurring. Yeah. Uh, the first one was pop, pop artists tend to premiere their music videos on the same day as their singles to maximize first week hype, while rappers tend to air out tracks for a few weeks to gauge audience feedback first. That's kind of interesting. It, it's sort of the the older, more traditional release strategy um, that Taylor Swift has kind of got down um, and versus the newer, you know, the one that has evolved since, I guess, like 2013, 14 of this or even before then, if you think about the mixtape culture. Um, so I, I thought that hypothesis was particularly interesting and pointed to some really bigger cultural tendencies in different genre scenes. Yeah, definitely. And um, I didn't mention this that much in the in this particular newsletter, but I realized kind of after the fact that maybe like people, some genres or some labels or some people in the industry don't see premieres as necessarily relevant in an era where like anything can be streamed at any time. So maybe they're like really thinking about the long game, um, which is why, cause also like some of the most viewed, some of the most viewed videos of all time um, are by rappers. 
Um, like a lot of Drake has uh, a couple of videos with like over a billion views, I'm sure. Um, Post Malone is like definitely approaching like the high hundreds of thousands uh, to like, you know, over a billion views. So they definitely rack up views over time. And uh, yeah, like maybe that's how that that's how people are trying to derive value from these videos now. It's kind of similar to like, I definitely heard in, in the audio streaming world, first week sales still matter like to an extent, but it's really not indicative anymore of like the long-term success of an artist. Um, and I know a lot of like marketing departments at labels and sales departments are trying to rethink their strategy accordingly. Like, oh, like maybe, yeah, it doesn't matter if we have um, this many views in 24 hours because that's not a good predictor um, of our artist's success in a year or in two years. And we need to like think more, more long-term for sure. And then if I could jump to your second hypothesis was flooding the market with content. Rappers rely heavily on short form video and editorial playlists for expo exposure. YouTube is optimized for neither. So again, a kind of a, another genre scene, cultural difference, maybe in terms of how, uh, how rappers might be approaching, uh, getting their content out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, yeah, so, so in my newsletter, I mentioned, um, this one marketing plan that's actually been institutionalized within a major label called the pump plan. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's like inspired by this question, which I personally have very mixed feelings about of like, how do you manufacture or guarantee virality? Like, I think you're already, um, that's already a lost cause. Like from there, like virality is like really hard to predict, but um, yeah, like, but in that plan, like people are mentioning platforms like uh, like TikTok or I'm sure like Vine would have been a big mm -hmm. part of the plan. And yeah, they all focus on like these much smaller units of video that I think travel a lot more quickly. And yeah, even just thinking like on Twitter, on the types of things that go viral, um, you're talking like videos that most of which like last no, you know, no longer than 10, 20, maybe like max 30 seconds. Um, and of course you can like integrate YouTube links into social feeds and YouTube videos are very e easily shareable, but I think just amongst smaller generations, especially there just isn't as much mind share of YouTube compared to these other platforms in terms of like being able to spread short form content that quickly and also have like a very clear, um, like social element to it. Like YouTube for sure is social in that you have like uh, you know, just videos will have like comments, um, but that's like no longer unique to YouTube and these other short form video apps, I think rely a lot more on this concept of like a social graph and like you actually sending videos to your friends. Whereas I think YouTube doesn't necessarily rely on that um, as much. And then also like as part of this theory, I think because, so, okay, if you compare rap uh, and like the traditional rap release cadence to like k-pop for instance so like uh so a lot of k-pop artists and a lot of mainstream pop artists i would include taylor swift in this um ariana grande is a bit of an outlier but usually they're not releasing like mixtapes of 10 to 15 tracks every couple months like they're very meticulous about their their single release and they'll like only release a single um yeah like occasionally maybe like a handful throughout the year um, leading up to an album and there's like a several week marketing plan like Taylor Swift had a countdown clock on her website leading leading up to the, the premiere of me um, and that like helped generate a ton of hype around both the single and the video hence the fact that the video broke the record in contrast uh, by I guess my hypothesis that I presented 
in this piece is that like rappers are just flooding the market so much and like yes a lot of them do invest heavily in music videos especially if they have the budget to do it at the very top but like at, in the grand scheme of things like that's just another piece of content in this flood that they've like created around themselves um which maybe like maybe benefits them over time as people are you know discovering more and more of their catalog across platforms but in the first 24 hours there's just like a, a there's a limit to i guess the amount of energy and attention that um that people will have around that specific piece of content if if they know that you're already kind of um creating your own deluge in the market if that makes sense yeah totally it's interesting about also kind of like the sort of the non-traditional you know, p- people that maybe didn't come up in the label industry initially, the, the culture of, of hip hop and rap also had just a different, a whole different approach to, con- you know, creating content outside of the, the rules of the game. And so mm-hmm. you have, there, there isn't as much of a, a, a funnel or bottleneck towards one particular format, um, which is, I think, sort of what you're saying in the, in the sense of some of the shorter form video content is you know, it just mixes it up even more. And so it continues to sort of like inform almost rebel against what other genre scenes are doing. That's true. Yeah. And actually um, one thought to uh, build off off the last one, and I'll tie it back to this as well. So uh, yeah, what I was going to say around like rappers um, releasing a ton of content, like several mixtapes a year is that um, Aside from, I guess, like viral short form videos, their strategy is actually like quite audio focused. When mm. I was looking into this, it was like a lot more audio focused than I think I realized. And that I think playlists um, matter a lot more to rappers disproportionately. Like, of course, a lot of artists care about playlists, but like because you're releasing so much audio, I think a lot of rappers are trying to like maximize those audio streams. Um, and I was thinking like that there's there's a reason why it's called like SoundCloud rap and not youtube rap i mean i don't even know what youtube rap like would would look like or like if that would even be like a you know a definable aesthetic but um just like soundcloud and um you know, just the ease of use of like how audio travels and how like people are like reposting audio um that doesn't def- that particular platform doesn't rely as much on playlists at the moment but um it's kind of like yeah it, it indicates a similar focus on just making the song travel and be as ubiquitous as possible um you know, before maybe releasing a piece of visual content. And I also do point out in the piece that like Drake, two of his most popular songs, Too Good and One Dance, I believe, um, don't even have music videos. And like, that was really surprising to me because I had like been hearing those songs all the time, like in malls, on the radio, just like wherever I was, I just have accepted that Drake is just everywhere. And it's like (laughs) omnipresent. And like, that is definitely his strategy without a video. Um, Like he doesn't really need any... Uh, I guess like visual support around that and that's like very telling of just the strategy of audio being able to travel um, and exist in more places and like gather more people's attention or like mind share than like a video where you kind of have to you know pay attention 100% of the time Um, but then to go back to what you're saying Dimitri um, uh, at the same time yes uh, rappers are I, I find that they, they do tend to be ahead of the curve it a lot for a lot of tech adoption. Like they're they're definitely very often the first to to experiment with these new platforms. Um rappers are definitely some of the first artists. This is like a very small feature example, but like to uh experiment with IGTV, 
like Jaden Smith was the first artist to like release an album exclusively on IGTV. Um, and then like rappers and their fans as well. Um, this is, this can become like a controversial topic as well in terms of like African-American audiences and artists um, being like first adopters and really like defining the culture of a platform like Vine. Like in that case, like no doubt, it was definitely these audiences that were kind of like using it first. And then um, like to, to what extent are they kind of taken along for the ride um, once Vine culture, for instance, really grows and becomes mainstreamed and, and monetized. But yeah, that trend is definitely there. And maybe that's why their mind isn't so set on YouTube because it is a huge platform and it also has been around for a really long time. And um, the UX of YouTube hasn't really changed in the last like five, 10 years even. Like, yes, it it looks uh, somewhat newer uh, and like a little sleeker, but it's still like, you know, you have your video, you have your comment section, you have like the algorithmic recommendations on the side, you have your homepage, like not much has changed. Um, and so I totally understand rappers who are maybe looking for an environment that feels more fluid and, and um, changes more quickly. On the other hand, your third hypo hypothesis was about YouTube having one of the most international user bases in the world. So maybe to wrap this up a little bit on how that might be impact impacting hip hop's uh, uh, use of, of the debut video and um, uh, yeah, in other markets, YouTube may still feel new, or maybe it's just, it is such a global platform uh, that there's a lot more um, genres competing for attention there too. So it doesn't feel as maybe hip hop friendly in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's more the fact it's a global platform that it's not hip hop friendly. Um, Cause I think a lot of uh, people are consuming are just on YouTube and have like a YouTube account um, anyway, and are visiting the platform daily. But so if you compare YouTube to a company like Spotify, for instance, I think Spotify is active in just under 80 markets at the moment. So it is becoming more international, but it is, I do not think it's representative of um, global, all global music consumers. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that comes up a lot. Like as an artist, like once you upload your music to Spotify, you're reaching all listeners. I think that's just not true. Um, YouTube has like, uh, I think is like the market leader in terms of user adoption in markets like India and Africa, where um, Spotify isn't really active at all. Like Spotify just launched in India and they're, they're doing pretty well um, being like recent movers into the space. But YouTube is definitely, I would say like uh, YouTube and then some other like local streaming platforms are like the number one streaming platforms for those audiences. Yeah, YouTube has an has an advantage in a sense because the licensing issue is not the same as that's as true. That's true. That's a big and, part of that. Yeah, and their content, their sort of content menu is much broader. So if you are, uh, say, a family in a more remote region of of India where data is actually quite affordable, apparently, um, you may use YouTube to look at all sorts of different kinds of content, and some of that may may be music, and some may not. So, but whereas, you know, something like Spotify, you're just like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> you know, where That's true, yeah. YouTube, I think, can fit into a wider range of kind of different activities and cultural formats. So it's interesting. Mm. So it's fun to be able to dive in with you on one of our news roundup sharing, actually kind of like uh, contextualize and, and pick apart some of what you've, what you've written about. We've got a bunch of other kind of news items we want to jump into. We'll for our listeners, we'll probably jump in at a more rapid pace. Sometimes this is a little bit of a mm -hmm. um, machine gun approach to, <laughs> to news around. <laughs> no problem. Hot no problem. takes. Yeah. Super hot takes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So Trisha, you pulled out this Wall Street Journal piece, Peloton sues music publishers <laughs> alleging anti-competitive behavior by Ann Steele, which ran April 30th. Yeah, I think Anne covered the initial suit um, on the behalf of, of publishers uh, for Peloton, and um, it's kind of a I don't know if it's a sad case would be the 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 word that's appropriate, but um, it, the suit this dispute is kind of sad because I think Peloton Peloton did go into this thinking they had to actually license things properly. Um, that is what I've heard from other um, alternative licensing um, folks. However, they apparently did not, at least not from the point of view of the publishers involved in the suit. And now it seems like they're a little frustrated and are striking back. And And there are a lot of these kind of disputes in the publishing world going on now. And I was wondering, Sherry, if you had any any perspective, I mean, obviously, um, you may not be a lawyer and want to try to adjudicate these <laughs> <laughs> conflicts, but um I'm wondering if you had any perspectives on why this kind of dispute is coming up more often. Is it because finally publishers see there's a, actually a pie they could get a piece of or have publishers changed their tune for some other reason? Yeah, um, really good questions. I think, yeah, I guess my mind is more towards the, that former point of like publishers seeing more of an opportunity in this space. Um, and I'm actually so one question that I have in mind um, I don't. I think. I think. Yeah. I think it's fine to mention on the podcast. But so I. I also take like spinning classes in Williamsburg, at this place called Flywheel, and all the instructors like come with their own playlists. And I'm actually, um, so I personally don't know yet actually where that music comes from. Like, if, are they playing? Are they playing just from their personal like Spotify playlists? Like, if yes, that would be a really big issue, understandably from from the perspective of. Um, labels and publishers because like these like peloton flywheel soul cycle they're like significant money significant money makers like people are paying um a lot of money to be in these classes a lot of times and um and music plays just such an important role in that experience being um good in the first place and then if you compare peloton to a company like soul cycle that now has like a whole in-house music team and i think soul cycle has like much more than its competitors even peloton like realizing the importance of music in the success of its brand and it's like actually investing in the music team to either like secure rights for using music in its classes or even like organizing live shows and like inviting live artists and like really developing a relationship with um with the music industry directly um with like you know in-house resources so yeah i think maybe uh, rights holders are seeing activity like that and then looking to um, all of the other competitors, which like at least in New York, SoulCycle is definitely like probably the most expensive one, but um, the other studios like aren't necessarily that much cheaper. And they're like, oh wait, we haven't really like talked to you yet. Like maybe we should and see if we're, you know, getting the value that um, we deserve based on the role that our music plays in your work. Well, you've got your 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 um, spin classes, but you've got all sorts of exercise for sure, classes like the whole fitness, yoga, and, yeah, and even massage. You know, playing music exactly. And I, I I always assume that you know the teachers may come in with their Google Play accounts or Spotify accounts and just play whatever, and then the venue has to pay the PROs for that. But I think in the case of Peloton, they actually are streaming along with video, right? And so it's mm -hmm. really a different type of license needed. Yeah, it gets it gets really complicated, and I've noticed that a lot of the sort of lower, more mass market fitness apps don't include music. 
Um, and I think that is probably a conscious decision as much as it um, makes the workouts a lot less fun. I think it probably makes their business model a lot more fun. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it, it's such an interesting space because music is so vital to, um, to the health of, of, of fitness and like what makes it work for most people. So well, and it's cool to see that these kind of innovation companies in the fitness world are, cr- are creating an actual revenue stream for the music industry in a way that didn't exist mm-hmm. You know, as much five, 10 years ago. When you're jogging with your Walkman, you know, nobody got paid besides, you know, whoever you, if you, if whoever you dubbed the cassette from, I, I, you know, or like let, let alone like knowing that you even played that song in your Walkman. Yeah. Yeah. There was some revenue for public performance in blank cassette sales. Oh, if I that's remember right. correctly, but it's still those, one off. Those were the days, I tell yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Trisha, you also pulled up this piece by uh, Darren Hemmings from Medium called "Music Streaming Services Are Gaslighting Us." What What was your takeaway there? Well, I, I, that title. Yeah, maybe I would have chosen a different title, but everyone is, of course, um, welcome to their own opinion. Well, I will jump um, in and say, Darren Hemmings is the managing director of a uh, digital marketing uh, agency called Motive Unknown. So <laughs> he might have made his motive known. I don't well, know. What, what I, yeah, I, who knows? Who knows what's what's going on in the background? But I did think there were some interesting points here about um, the user experience. Um, often. Streaming services point to how awesome it is that we have basically this huge buffet of music. And this author was arguing that on the contrary, it can make you miserable. And there's such a thing as overabundance and just being overwhelmed by choice. And that there's yet to be a really um, what feels like an organic cultural solution to how do I find music that I actually want to listen to? Not music that sounds like, or music that other people that like the same music I do listen to. I mean, it's especially hard if you're very a voracious and eccentric listener, like many people who are Spotify or Apple music subscribers. Um, so he was, he was basically saying that he, you know, he felt like he had been sold a bill of goods, um, in terms of, the joys of having everything at his fingertips and he kind of wished he could go into a, I mean, he probably still could if he wanted to, there's some great record independent record stores all over the world, but you know, the joy of going to a record store. And I remember this from my um, youth 3000 years ago um, that you could go in and be like, Hey, I really loved this. Like, you know, Cocteau Twins 4AD thing you sold me and they'd recommend something else. They'd say like, Oh, you should really try, you know, whatever this other, this other band. So, um, there is that there that's sort of the the gist of the article and and like you know gaslighting is extreme. well he and he <laughs> he describes the experience as as in one section where he talks about imagine you go into a record store back in the 90s and they start loading up tens of thousands of albums into your car and then they add a trailer and they add mm-hmm. more and they're like, oh, you paid 10 pounds and this is what you got you said you liked indie rock well here it is but then you know his conclusion is sort of about him spending money directly on channels where artists get a chunk a large chunk of the the sale price and that that's what he's recommending that people do yeah and that was something i think um that mark mulligan of media just tossed had an interesting blog post about that as well that there should be that there are other models kind of being kicked around more seriously i think they've been around forever uh, well, not forever, for for years, but um, that there's more interest with what YouTube has done recently, uh, for instance, where you can kind of reward a creator whose channel you think is really awesome, that there should be more specificity in how people are compensated or how artists are compensated for 
the music that you love. Um, anyway, Sherry, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on all of this, but um, <laughs> mm. it's, it's definitely something bubbling in the industry about yeah. how to how to support artists and how to find the music you want. For sure. Um, yeah, I I personally am also of the opinion that um, touting like the millions of tracks that you have just doesn't really mean anything to me. Like it, like if all these services are like, oh, we have fifty plus million tracks. Uh, 40 plus million tracks um but yeah just that that isn't a selling point it's just like a fact like okay sure you have all these millions of tracks on your platform um after a certain point i really don't think there's any like added benefit in adding a million more like of course there's an added benefit of like housing like if you're youtube housing the entire diversity of creativity that's happening around the world yes like that's that's a really great um value proposition but um yeah, I like I I pay for Spotify and I probably only listen to uh like max Just like two hundred right? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. At at the very maximum two million a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like I'm, I'm not just I'm not really interacting with that catalog at all. So yeah, there's just like a there's a gap there between like what's marketed and what what the user experience actually is. Yeah. And and, you, and I think there's I, there's a lot to be said for the related artists. That is the only way I found mm. interesting stuff on Spotify. Every once in a while, the algorithm will suggest something truly bizarre um, that warms my heart. But um, I liked I I love to just listen to all sorts of random stuff. But at the same time, yeah, uh, it's it gets to a point where you're like, I cannot tell this electronic artist from another. Um, and it's very, you, you can get very disoriented deep in those rabbit holes. Totally. I, so. Sherry, I kind of think sort of what you're getting at is that there was a moment in time where when legitimate streaming services were coming online, where they had to collect a certain amount of catalog to be worth. That's true. Yeah. The work mm -hmm. based subscribing Not to being a pirate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now you can't really differentiate by quantity. Once you get the majority of the, the tracks that are regularly being listened to, we don't have as much of this windowing happening. Um, sure, you could look at high def audio, high resolution audio versus not. That's a differentiator for some if you've got very fancy speakers. Um, but in terms of catalog size, it sort of feels like everyone's moving towards having as much possible. So mm -hmm. there's, it's not really a differentiator. And so now we get into the moment of differentiation is really around these recommendations and some cool things have happened. Everything from the moment of songs all the way through Spotify playlists to beats one DJ style discovery, Pandora algorithm, uh, human, human, human coded uh, recommendation. Um, and that, I think that's the conversation that we're in the middle of. It's a transitional period where we're saying, okay, so what's next after playlists? And it hasn't been resolved yet, but that is probably going to determine some success. The question is whether one streaming service is going to be able to hold on to a moat of some sort of discovery process that's stronger than others, you know, so far, uh, you know, you feel a little bit, I, I mean, I've listened and been able to discover some music on Pandora versus Spotify or Apple Music. Um, but honestly, like when I'm using my Sonos, Google Play's search is so much better. And I don't even have a Google Play account. Mm -hmm. Some friend of a kid, you know, <laughs> one of my kids logged in once. And so, but I noticed the searches on Google, like it's just like a Google search engine. It's way, you can misspell the artist's name and it pops up way better than the yeah. Spotify integration mm -hmm. with Sonos. Oh, yeah, Spot so. Spotify, if looking for th uh, non-Western or, or things with accent marks or stuff like that is not fun in Spotify. 
Um, wow, we just went in the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking of Spotify and dis- discovery, there was this piece in The Verge, Spotify tests placing podcast episodes alongside music recommendations. And this does get interesting. And at the last uh, New York Music Tech meetup in April, Alex White from Pandora read a really cool essay talking about where he sees the future of discovery. And he was also big on the integration of different types of audio, not just music. Um, but Tristra, what stood out for you on this Verge piece by Ashley Carmen from May 1st? There's been a lot of talk of what uh, the, the, this, this tension between radio, especially in the car environment and streaming services and other audio platforms. And so this really to me is like, wow, Spotify is making its playlist into radio. Um, you know, you have a little bit of music and then some chatter, such as this lovely podcast. Um, and, and then you have a little bit more music. Um, so it kind of sounds like a sort of a, a bot created um, radio channel. And, and I can only imagine how strange this could get. <laughs> I mean, it could be really fun, but it could also well, be also really personalized, strange. though. Also yeah. personalized, right? Yeah. Like, whereas in commercial, old school commercial radio, you might have some news integrated with some music and you're like, this is the mainstream lowest common denominator yeah. music. Whereas now you might be able to have your news integrated with music you personally like. Or Just, you know, Yeah, you could have like that cooking podcast and then it segues into heavy metal and Stockhausen. It'll be really yeah, interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sherry, it's so funny because both of us started podcasts while we're talking about things like Spotify all the totally, time. And now yeah. Spotify talking about podcasts. Oh gosh, it's just <laughs> it's a it's an endless cycle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, uh, Trisha, I want to know more about what, why you picked this article about Snap. Snap's big plan to turn Snapchat into a gaming platform that you pulled off, also from The Verge, this time by Andrew Webster. Uh, I was just noticing that we're seeing a lot of news. Uh, there are there are many. There's much pivoting going on. Um, so mm. Facebook had the big developers conference talking about this big. I mean, they've been talking about this for quite some time since all the scandals last year um, about you know switching to, towards more of a privacy focus, so more of a personal interaction focus, which they felt you know sort of lost their way a little bit, um, and. Meanwhile, Snap is sort of also trying to find its focus is there's been a lot of talk about Snap losing losing a momentum and not being the hot new thing anymore, thanks to things like TikTok. So Snap, I think, is trying to create these game environments and various other ways of engaging people and, and differentiate itself from just this. There's a general malaise in the um, on the social platforms, and they're not quite sure what they are and where they're going. And I think that has implications both for music marketing and for um, you know people who are who find music in these various uh, places. And I, Sherry, you you think a lot about gaming and a lot about uh, social stuff. So when I saw these these pieces, I thought oh, this might be this might be a fun thing to uh, get your two cents on. Um, and yeah, especially Facebook, that to me seems like it could be a real struggle for some. I mean, musicians have been complaining about it for a couple of years now, how hard it is to work with Facebook now. Um, and it seems like it's going to become even more challenging. But I guess that's tough to say, though. They're also licensing content, <laughs> as Billboard uh, announced recently. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a strange moment. What are, What's your take on it? On, on all these pivots? Yeah, it's super interesting. So one thing that Snap has like continually managed to do that I'm surprised about is uh, remain popular among like a very specific younger demographic. So like my assumption about them, and I think many people's assumptions about them 
um, was that given that they had a ton of users in like the ages 13 to like young to early 20s bracket, um, that they would grow up, they would outgrow Snap, they their tastes are like super fickle at that time, and then they just kind of like leave Snap. But like I've read a lot of articles, at least from like an advertiser's perspective, saying that like Snap is more effective for us for still reaching like 13 to 20 year olds than Instagram. Um, or Facebook, there's like yeah. uh, a much more engaged audience like on Snap. Um, so I think like Snap is definitely leaning more into that. I also know, although so in tech, uh, I'm not sure how widely this is known, but there's this like concept of defensibility and like how, um, which means like how well can you defend yourself against the competition if they try to do what you're doing? Like what what's the size and the quality, the depth, et cetera, of like the moat that you're building around yourself? And I historically thought that like one of Snap's uh, really important pillars in terms of defensibility was augmented reality um, and the fact that they have things like Bitmoji and they've like also like worked with artists to like make Bitmoji of artists and like you can put them in your videos or your photos and kind of interact with them. Um, Instagram has really not replicated that in its stories like to the same quality or like same diversity of opportunity for for these interactive kinds of video experiences so i think it is really smart for snap to like lean into that um to and i think obviously yeah there's like a ton of opportunity to connect that and the avatars and then the bitmoji space with gaming like now you could have a character that that is involved in gaming um and yeah facebook i um have very mixed feelings about i feel like facebook has yet like facebook is always pivoting and they've yet to launch um a new feature that um that actually like makes a meaningful dent in that respective space so like as an example there's a lot of buzz when they launched lasso which is like a short form video platform Mm -hmm. that some people understood to be a competitor to musically at the time um before it was folded into tiktok and then now competitor to tiktok people were like oh my god facebook has like two billion users um they're all going to migrate to lasso and sort of out i guess beat out all the competition and that just has not happened at all. Like I like rarely ever hear about that app um, among artists, among like other creators or personalities as well. So yeah, I just feel like n- no matter what new features Facebook tries to launch, they they will always be bogged down in. Um, it's even though it happened like relatively longer ago, the sense of like mistrust in the platform um, and like all the problems that they're facing like politically um, and. The problems that like YouTube they're facing on like content moderation as well. I think like that will always kind of be their biggest handicap. Um, and hopefully the thing that that they'll um, pay the most attention to. And just in terms of UX, I mean, Facebook is already so big and clunky and has so For many sure, layers yeah. and it's already impossible to find anything. You kind of feel like any new rollout is going to be really, it's just going to be hard to even get users to be aware of it because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so buried in, the, in, in what they're looking at every day. So. so this billboard piece on Facebook licensing by Colin Stutz, uh, Facebook embraces music, how the social network is friending the industry by licensing content to me is also, I mean, it's been taking a while to see the licensing of music roll out instead of them solely relying on the kind of the takedown approach to music by user-generated content, partly because I think they are responding to things like TikTok wanting to have the ability to keep people on platform within Facebook and having those uh, user-generated hybrid music licensing experiences as well. 
Um, and I'm, I'll just be curious to see or learn data about what kind of um, revenue is being generated for the music industry from those Facebook licenses. Yeah. And TikTok is is struggling right now, I think, with some big negotiations mm-hmm. on that front. That's going to be a really, uh, uh, I mean, if we thought the Spotify publishers, Apple Music back and forth tennis match was fun, I think that this might be another one for, for, for the coming months where we're going to see a lot of back and forth and a lot of acting out in the press of, of these various tensions. And maybe to bring this full circle from all, pretty much all of our conversations today, there's this piece from Complex called How TikTok is Launching Rappers to Viral Success. And uh, just just pulled it into the mix just because, um, you know, obviously we, we've talked about Lil Nas X on here, but this mm-hmm. is kind of a interesting framing that it's larger than a single artist. And um, Sherry, since we started by talking about your piece on um, YouTube playing a small role um, or a or, uh, unexpectedly small role, at least with video debuts for hip hop. It's interesting to see this TikTok piece um, about about it actually having a little more of that viral feel that you were talking about in the in the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, TikTok is a, a, a definitely like a, a different and distinct platform in its own right. But I think a lot of people feel that it fills a void that um, Vine left and hasn't really been filled yet. And like, um, Vine also very similarly like launched the careers of um, some rappers and even like artists outside of that genre like Shawn Mendes who's like still doing really well um, was discovered on Vine and also I think like much more than other short form video platforms TikTok is um, asserting its role in the A&R space so so I, I don't think the platform itself is going to take a role sorry it's going to play a role directly in like signing and developing talent, but at least in its like headquarter country of China. Um, and I, I think this is in part because of like local norms around like uh, the extent to which labels can collaborate as opposed to compete with tech companies. But I know TikTok has been working with, with a lot of labels on the ground, trying to like source talent for them and then kind of be like a pipeline directly for these labels and like them asserting like, we yes, we can play this role rather than that kind of happening um, like not not happening on um, on their own watch, and so uh, yeah, I think that I'm not sure if that same um, level of like institutional support um, has happened in the U.S. yet, but um, I think just yeah uh, that points to just like the higher level fact that it is a Chinese owned company and the way that like the Chinese music industry is doing business. Um, is so different from the U.S., but I think will undoubtedly infiltrate um, the way that these rappers and um, and other artists get discovered in the U.S. and other Western markets. I think. Well, something crazy, you know, we're we're as you know, Sherry, because you're coming to the Music Tectonics Conference in L.A. October 28th and 29th, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, when kind of keep an eye out what's going on in L.A. because it seems like there is this convergence of both. Um, mm-hmm technology and music record label content obviously film video game all happening in la um doing a lot of linkedin research and things there are something like 43 jobs open at link at tiktok in la right now interesting <laughs> um so huh. and and you see a lot of interesting positions people there that are in la at tiktok americans in in positions that are related to music and tiktok um so i think uh you'll start to see 
start to I'm, I'm starting to see in that space more conversation there about purposeful purposefully driven uh music efforts and campaigns mm. uh, via tiktok mm. so i don't think it's going to feel as much like uh Oh look, there's this Chinese company with these um, artists that have kind of gravitated towards it. It's going to feel a little more like what we see with other platforms, where there's a real creator community and there's a right, right, right. there's a team mm-hmm. in place to work with those creators as well. Mm. Um, um, so this is cool. Anything either of you want to throw into the mix before we wrap up the news roundup component here? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fun. I think I think this is the most I've thought about TikTok in a long, long time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess one additional thought that comes to mind is, um, especially in like the augmented reality space, there hasn't been, like, there's been so much investment in the space that there've been a lot of like artists and festivals doing one-off campaigns, but I'm like, I'm wondering what an AR app like will actually look like an AR driven app, um, in music. And that's like just a deeper question of like what consumer behavior will look like in like five years. Cause I think that will require, like, I don't think an AR app can take off right now, um, given, like, I guess, our our own preferences and our own behaviors. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, like, how if all that changes, like, five years down the line. You know, what I want to see, I, I'm kind of, th- that makes me think of is, you know, audio AR might pick right. up faster uh-huh. than what we traditionally think of as AR. There just seems to be a lot of momentum, both on the headphone space, the, the, the glasses, the Etc. The wearables can, on the ear, though. The hearables. The hearables. Thank you. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get. <laughs> the hearables. Also, you know, yeah. the voice optimized speaker stuff. Yeah. I think there's a. I mean, <laughs> what happens if you turn on a, a setting in your voice, in your speak, smart speakers, where um, whenever you start referring to cooking, there's some music that automatically starts playing oh that gets you going. Oh what if and the other thing is that audio can be layered we're already used to i mean it, it, audio was the first ar i mean when when human beings tried to evoke you know otherworldly situations in religious contexts or spiritual contexts it was always using music um so we are mm-hmm. used to layering music into our consciousness to transform our perception of what's around us and and to um, you know, seriously modify our consciousness to not get too woo here, but um, but even just headphones <laughs> alone, right? Headphones are 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 the original AR for yeah, audio. Absolutely. Making, yeah, absolutely. Making music in the in a temple is is AR. Um, you're, I mean, and that's the way it was actually viewed, right? You're you're evoking. You can make a god or a spirit do things through music. Um, and you know, or through a ritual, you can transform reality and, and actually shift what's happening. Um, that, that said, I, I think it's going to be way easy. It's like built into us in a way that having, um, uh, another visual layer is going to be really challenging or, mm-hmm. um, even having a voice giving us specific textual instructions, like, so that kind of semantic stuff, I think that processing is much more challenging. I mean, obviously, people could get adapt to that. But I think this just the audio world is way easier to augment for for most people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it'll be it'll be cool to see what happens there as well. Just be I mean, like the reason I think Pokemon Go worked so well was because first, the innovation and technology companies fuse these devices to our hands <laughs> and then we could lift them yeah. up a little higher uh-huh. <laughs> versus having to adopt something new and, and voice and audio. I mean, um, you know, we've already gotten used to people wearing headphones and 
having speakers around and things like that. So good question, Sherry. I like, I like where you're going with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great having you on. Um, great that you were one of the first to sign up to uh, join us and speak at Music Tectonics mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, October 20th and 29th. If anyone wants to follow Sherry, again, you can go to SherryWho.com. You can look up Water and Music on any podcasting platform. You'll find out about her email newsletter, which is awesome. We've kicked off the podcast talking about um, one of the pieces she put in her newsletter. Um, done a great job at killing it on the Patreon side and, and, and showing other creators how you can really build a career um, while still doing the freelancing at the, the, the billboards and the music business worldwide, but also creating your own content. So congrats on all that. Thank you. Um, come over to musictectonics.com, sign up for our newsletter. You get a discount to the conference, musictectonics.com, October 28th and 29th in Los Angeles. Did I say that enough times yet? Tristra, <laughs> uh, thanks as always, curating thanks. great pieces. Sherry, thanks for joining us. We'll Thank have you, you on so again. Sherry. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Anytime. So much fun. See you around soon. Thanks again. Yeah. You're listening to Music Tectonics.